From Variety, celebrating more than 115 years covering the business of entertainment, this is the Award Circuit Podcast. To touch one person who left something like buried inside and to relieve that person from that, even just for the time that they're just watching my film. I'm not talking about forever, I'm not talking about changing their lives, I'm just talking about this one hour and 40 minutes where they're watching my film. If they feel less alone with something, then I think that, I mean, that's the best thing that can happen. French director Julia Ducourneau, who burst onto the world filmmaking scene in 2016 with her first feature, Raw, is back with another major work of art in her new film, Titan. I'm Michael Schneider, and on this edition of the Variety Awards Circuit Podcast, we talk to Julia Ducourneau about the journey to creating her film, Titan, and her struggle to connect with the main character. But first, our Award Circuit Roundtable discusses West Side Story, Don't Look Up, and the upcoming Critics' Choice and Golden Globe nominations. It's all on this edition of the Variety Award Circuit Podcast. Stay close. It's Roundtable time. Happy holidays, everyone. Clayton Davis. Ho, Michael ho, ho. Schneider. Good to see you. Don't call me a ho. But yes, I'm doing great. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. I think I've just been canceled, though, by Clayton Davis. <laughs> live on air. Yeah, live on air. Whatever. Janelle Riley, how's it going? You can call me anything you want, Body Mike. <laughs> That's you're 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 keeping that nickname going. Someone needs to. <laughs> and Jazz Tanke taking a break from her 100 panels this week. Well, all three of you, <laughs> ridiculous the amount of work you're all doing right now. Yeah, it's it's like it's it's like it's like there's not a pandemic anymore. Exactly, <laughs> I know what Janelle is at all times. Oh, because of Instagram, <laughs> but uh, not me posting. But a friend of yours who, yeah, it, it comes to a lot of my panels. Oh, that's right. You all have stalkers. I, I forget. <laughs> you all have your personal fan clubs. No, so. no, they're vi- they're very nice. But yeah, it's uh, it's busy times, including events. Uh, it, it's it's like 2019 all over again, folks. Right? Like we're mm-hmm. out. And Careful out what and you about. wish for. It's like last year, I was like, "Oh man, I miss in-person events." And now, I mean, I still love it, but like, yeah, there's there's a couple times where you're just like, "Oh, I miss my bed." <laughs> now it's like you're scheduling. Like, how can I get from the Four Seasons to the London in like ten minutes? I have one tonight. I got to get from one location to another pretty quickly. And I'm like trying to strategize traffic. You yeah. Know? <laughs> like getting like the you, car out yep. of the parking lot first. That's like the exactly yeah. it. That's exactly it. But the, the, it, it's so funny because you can never strategize traffic in LA. Like no. don't even try. And yet I think if I, you know, check every night, three nights before, I'll, I'll get a reasonable estimate. <laughs> and just to, talk about i know you have a watch obviously to keep an eye on the time (laughs) so i figured i'd be really smart and get an apple watch and like set the alarm on silent so if you do that or if you put your phone on silent and you set the alarm to vibrate the only problem is you literally you're literally sitting in your panel vibrating so your wrist is vibrating and your your pocket is vibrating you're like that does not work well as an old my eyesight is not great. And so I had to get this giant watch with a big face that has big <laughs> numbers on it. And you can like really see it in the photos. Like <laughs> it's this big <laughs> clunky thing. And it's cheap. It's like $6 from Rite Aid. Very hard to find a watch under $60 in Los Angeles. And I can't spend money on watches because they break really easily on me. And, uh, you know, sometimes they don't come with instructions. And during uh, uh, the Power of the Dog panel the other night, like, Benedict Cumberbatch was saying something really profound. And my f- stupid watch started beeping. And I was <laughs> like, we're, we're just going to pretend this isn't happening. So. This, is, this is the oldest millennial conversation I've ever heard like, yeah. in the history of ever. <laughs> like, instructions on watches. I don't wear watches because I don't like them. I don't, yeah, I don't like them either. Yeah. I only get it they for a Q&A. They, yeah. they, they uh, mess up my balance. Yeah, but we've all we've all been there where you're on stage and you're moderating a panel and you sort of have to figure out the subtle way to look at your watch or look at the time yeah. without yeah. it appearing like you're looking at the, the the time and and yeah, it's it's creative ways to 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 pull that off. 
I can't wear like real watches because there's like something in my body chemistry. It just breaks watches. <laughs> they never last more than three months. It's your and body so, rejecting any uh, chemicals it's trying to give you. There's a, there's a name for it and it's actually fairly common, I've learned. It's like some sort of like an uh, electrical current that certain yeah. people have and, and electronics tend to fail on them. Oh. For me, magneto. It, pulls, it, it, it pulls my, yeah, magneto. <laughs> it, pull, it pulls my wrist hair. Okay, there's that that's, that's why I always hate when we go to like events and they put the uh, wristbands. And I they hate those stick, things. And it tapes yeah. on my hair. I'm like, stop. All right, there's a scintillating hand. conversation. Everyone, I know, yeah. But, um, <laughs> tantalizing. <laughs> but, Let's start but I guess, over. I, I guess I got, I'm, I'm finally, finally pulling the producer card and saying, guys, yeah. let's get back on topic. Let's, yeah, get, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's hone it in. So speaking of events, yeah. So, so Clayton and Jazz, uh, uh, tell me about where you were last night, Monday night. Uh, yeah, time of recording. Uh, we went to the celebration of Black Cinema to celebrate Black Cinema and TV, rather, um, where it was hosted by Nisi Nash, who is just funny as can be, as always. Uh, and the room. So I, I'm sure we all feel this way as we have gotten to this new stage of the pandemic and there are in-person events. There's just been a lot of love in a room like like journalists never hugged each other and I've been, and people hug me so much now and it's a good change. I don't mind like a good hug, but everyone just seems really, really, cause I, I think, cause we know we're vaccinated. You have to be vaccinated. You have to be tested right before you go, all those things. So I think people are just really, really happy to be with people again. And a lot of that you can feel through the evening, but Ava DuVernay got the first ever Melvin Van Peebles Trailblazer Award, which was presented to her by Mario Van Peebles, which, by the way, they gave out his dad's uh, Criterion package collection. It was on every seat for a guest to take uh, after the event, which was oh, that's cool. fun. Yeah, That was an amazing, yeah. Yeah, it was a nice little swag. Barry Jenkins gave one of the best, well, no, actually, he gave, he did give one of the best speeches. He gave It was presented to him. His award was presented to him by his editor, Joy McMillan, and he gave us such a beautiful shout out, which was so nice to see because, you know, more often than not, as I, you know, as I know what covering it, artisans don't always get a lot of accolade and she presented it to him and she is the funniest person. Yeah, she should have ever, a stand-up. She should have a stand-up back. She's really yeah. Funny. If you've ever interviewed her, like you will sit there like in hysterics because she's like the funniest person. But yeah, he gave her a really nice shout out, and that was sweet. But I think Halle Berry definitely gave the most emotional speech of the evening. Yeah, and Clayton videoed it. Yeah, right. Yeah, I videoed a lot of a lot of them. Barry Jenkins, yeah. by the way. Uh, Gave me a shout out too. He, said, he did. He thanked, he thanked Clayton Davis, and then I, you know, now I'm hiring uh, publicity now because that makes me really famous if <laughs> they say your name on stage. So there's that. Um, but no, yeah, Hallie brought the house down. She, she got the Career Achievement Award. I mean, listen, she, you know, she's standing up there. She was like, you know, I'm standing up here as a director. I've been in a lot of rooms that look like this. You know. Will Smith got the actor award. He's not there because Emancipation won't stop shooting ever. He's in Avatar 2, 3, 4 level now. Like, Emancipation is that movie that will never stop. Uh, Antoine Fuqua was also not there. He got the director award for The Guilty. Uh, the cast of The Heart of They Fall got the ensemble prize. Dion Cole gave a very, very funny uh, speech. So funny. He, I think I am now... I need a Dion Cole Oscar host. I think. Yeah. I think that's. I think that's where I am now. I think he should host the Oscars. Uh, Mike, I did ask him by the way on the red carpet uh, when we're getting a Dion Cole stand-up special, and he said soon, twenty twenty-two. So I got some cool interviews on the on the carpet uh, there. Oh, that's cool. Was, that's which cool. Was good because he is Dion hilarious. Uh, Ruth Nega got a great award. Danielle Brooks uh, uh, from Mahalia. Uh, gave a really, really beautiful speech. And Jennifer Hudson uh, gave, her, gave a really good uh, good shout-out uh, because she's there for respect. And also asked her on the red carpet about, you know, if she's going to be doing a talk show because rumor, word on the street. And she said she uh, does more like than to word on the street. That was in <laughs> Variety.com. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You can't trust that source. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, she she said her life goes through different. Uh, I think she said like her life goes through different uh, 
times and she does like to talk but she did talk about getting back into music and she's going to get back into the studio which 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 was uh really cool and interesting and robin Thede's my spirit animal i want to hang uh, out with her for the rest love, of my life love love she is she is great she is fantastic. Well, while you were uh, partying uh, over there, I was at the uh, dress rehearsal for live in front of a studio audience, wow. the facts of life Ooh, and different yay. strokes. And I will say this, um, perfect casting Kevin Hart as Arnold Drummond. And you'll see that the second <laughs> you see him standing. So so Kevin Hart is 5'4". Uh, John Lithgow, who plays Mr. Drummond, is 6'4". So when you see the two of them standing next to each other, yeah, it works. There's a point where John Lithgow picks up Kevin Hart like he's a kid. There's a point where Kevin Hart jumps in the John Lithgow's lap like he's an eight-year-old. That's the moment that brought down the house. Uh, But Anne Dowd as Mrs. Garrett is... Fantastic. Close your eyes. You really? think it actually is Charlotte Ray. I, the, the wig was on point. The vocal inflections. It's so much fun. So by the time people are listening to this, they've already watched it. And I hope they enjoyed it, especially some of the, the cameos that show up. Snoop Dogg uh, shows up. Uh, you've got uh, Will Arnett and Jason Bateman, John Stewart. Uh, and then also bringing down the house... Uh, the uh, couple of the original cast members. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Cool. In- including uh, Lisa Welchel, Blair, who sings the opening to The Facts, Facts of Life. Facts of Life? Oh, she so opens cool. the entire show singing, and uh, and, and Lisa Welchel, look, I mean, how is she? She has not aged. She looks wow. incredible. She still looks like Blair. And she was even wearing the Eastland girls' school outfit as Blair. Probably It's probably her original costume. It still fits. She looks incredible. So a really, really fun show. We'll always love those, and they always win Emmys, and I'm sure this one probably will again, too. Um, just I just remembered my favorite like Facts of Life joke is in Inside Amy Schumer when she did uh, 12 Angry Men parody, and, Kumail Nanj- and someone said something, and Kumail Nanjiani was like, like you can't take Joe. Joe would break you in half. And I always <laughs> found that to be very, very funny. Um, oh, by the way, I, I I do need to mention because this I realize this is airing after the fact. Celebration of Latino Cinema is happening Thursday, uh, and that would have happened by then. Where honorees Reynaldo Margaret Green, Clifton Collins Jr., Olga Meredith, uh, were all in attendance, and hosted by Cristela Alonso, who is also a very funny uh, individual and should yeah. uh, pursue a career in comedy. love christella too um and her her show is now i think streaming on uh her her christella comedy i think it's now streaming on hulu if i'm not mistaken um or somewhere so do go back and watch that so what's going on this weekend kids what's uh what's what's opening what are people uh hitting uh the theaters to see a movie called West Side Story. <laughs> little, little indie film. As Rachel Zegler said at our uh, Q&A the other night, her first job was in a little indie film by Steven Spielberg called West Side Story. How is that her first film? It's re- How is it? Yeah, her first professional acting job. It's ridiculous. That's amazing. It's a good, good year for like brand newcomers between Alana Hyam mm. and uh, Rachel Zegler. And also, uh, probably my favorite story from, from, from West Side Story, um, from the casting, is David Alvarez won a Tony when I think he was 15 for playing one of the Billy Elliots on Broadway. And then he left acting, joined the Army, was backpacking around Mexico, went on, I think he's had a three-year backpacking trip, and uh, got the call to audition for the role of Bernardo. And he wasn't even sure he wanted to get back into acting, but now he's back. He loves it. He's going to keep doing it. And I'm so glad because he's fantastic. Oh, wow. And Rita, Rita Moreno singing somewhere. I mean, how do you feel it's going to do this weekend? Um, I think, and it's probably the, so the variant doing its thing may be like, sadly, it's best friend. Because I think it's going to make like $4. Really? because I think anyone that would have gone to see this isn't going to the movies right now. And, but, but I, but it won't matter. I, right, I am, right. I'm all, I'm also one that doesn't think box office really matters anymore. Like, oh, I think, no, I, agree. I think we need to just like, kind of get off, like, you know, it's a bomb. Like it, it would be like, if we were still judging album sales, 
like they were in the nineties. Like, I just feel like it just isn't like, and we say Adele bombed it. She, you know, she had 800,000 copies, you know, well, it's the same thing in TV with ratings. So now that everything yeah. does a 0.6 rating, you, you yeah. can't really judge things by that anymore. It's gotta be the long tail. It's gotta be the impact in other ancillary markets. Yeah. It's the, uh, the impact, uh, in, in terms of pop culture. Um, yeah, it's, it's a lot tougher. You're right now. So, uh, Michael, Mr. Nielsen would like a word with you. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Nielsen is dead, um, <laughs> as are the Nielsen ratings. <laughs> hot, hot take. Hashtag hot, hot take. take. <laughs> I mean, it's true, though. They're, the ratings just, like, you can't judge it the same way any, any longer. But it won't matter for West Side Story if it makes $4 or not. It's going to, like, I was at the first L.A. SAG Q&A that was hosted by someone on this podcast named Janelle Riley. Hosted. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> I didn't invite uh, them all. I just moderated yeah, the conversation. She, she, yeah. she moderated after. <laughs> um, and uh, I, you know, the room blew crazy. up. It it's blew crazy. up. Crazy. Yeah. They stood up. Like, For it, every it, single cast member. Yeah. Wow. So it, 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 it's, it's loved out there. Now, is, is it a Best Picture winner? I don't know. We can see kind of how we go down the line with that. But, um, I, I did see it, you know, which was which was the first step in this quest of knowing what West Side Story was about. Um, and I just have to say, Ariana DeBose, I wish we weren't having a conversation in which we are just hoping you get into a supporting actress five. I wish we were having a conversation that it would be a no brainer that you would be winning the category. I feel like it's a no-brainer she's getting in, don't you? Yeah. No? No. It's hard it is it's hard to say. It is a competitive, competitive twenty category. There are twenty. I'm not even yeah. like exaggerating. There are twenty yeah. women. And weirdly, they're all in Belfast. <laughs> yeah. I mean I mean listen, the the fact that Meryl Streep is like number twelve shows I, you I how know. deep this category yeah. is. Good point. She's I was 12. thinking about that <laughs> this morning. I was like, because they had the Don't Look Up premiere the other night in yep. New York, and it was like this is such a strange year where the Meryl Streep slot is not a guarantee. Like, nope. She's like way down, which. Nope. Regina uh, King is like 18 and she's right. great and harder. They fall. Like, I mean, everyone is just like fighting for five spots. Uh, Don't look up also opens this weekend, technically in theaters before, you know, hitting uh, Netflix in mm. a couple weeks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think listen, also lead actor. Very competitive because Leo's fighting for a spot, and like I don't know if he's going to get one. He I could. feel pretty bullish about that. I, I think he gets in, but but you're right. I mean, nothing is for sure. Yeah. And uh, by the way, our podcast guest this week is Adam McKay, uh, director. Talk, of talks, he he allows me to say that Leo looks a little schlubby in this movie because <laughs> I was like, he's playing against type. I was like, I don't want to say he looks schlubby, but he looks like you know like normal. And Adam was realized like. He's a little schlubby. You can say schlubby. Like, mm. that was the idea, you know, and it's it's just really fun to see him play so against type. What do we think about the the so much of the narrative right now about Adam McKay being all about his, the falling out with Will Ferrell? And that's so much of what the focus has been on the, the past couple of days. I might be naive. Weeks. I honestly feel like that's like a subset's. I think yeah. it's inside baseball. Yeah, I don't think I don't think anyone really knows like anything about it. Yeah, and yeah. they're from like everything I've experienced or people I've talked to, they're both just such nice guys. It's like it's just sort of a shame, you know, sometimes that these things happen and honestly I just I hope they work it out because look, I went to see Nightmare Alley and all I could think about was Mary Steenburgen and Richard Jenkins are both in this movie and they don't have a scene together. Where is my stepbrother's reunion? Yep. So all I want out of life well, is a stepbrothers reunion. <laughs> I was thinking that with Rooney Mara and Kate Blanchett. I was like, yes! really? That's all we're going to get? Come on. Where's the camera? I mean, at least they were in the same room. Yeah. But, but, but I, 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 inter I interviewed Guillermo last week and I was like, Guillermo, like, I love your movie, but I'm going to tell you, you're, you're kind of a piece of crap because you have Richard Jenkins and Mary Steenburgen and you don't even like <laughs> flirt with them engaging for a second. And he was like, I, I heard that afterwards and I told, I, it didn't like dawn on me. I was like, well, come on. I need you to be that visionary filmmaker. We know you to be. Director's cut. Yeah. Director's yeah. cut. Cute. Yeah. Like reshoots, man. Bring them back. <laughs> and their characters do, do know each other. Because yeah. he's friends with her husband, so it makes perfect sense. They could have. Yes. It's fine. Um, and then what? Else, what? Else, just uh, this weekend. Uh, we actually no. I'm sorry. And don't look up. 
Do you think there's supporting play yes. there for w- which one? I guess that's. I think it goes several directions. I would not rule out Mark Rylance, who is very funny and weird and obviously a beloved, respected actor. I'm not ruling out Meryl. Um, oh, I'm, oh, I was talking about supporting actor. In oh, supporting actor. actor. Yeah, I I lean towards Mark Rylance. Jonah Hill is very, very good and funny. Um, but I don't know that, you know, every, there's so many good people in it that, you know, I don't know how many people get the most screen time. Mm. Um, but I, like I said, I'm not ruling anything out at this point. Yeah. I think this is his best. Uh, this is McKay's best of his like serious outings, like outside of stepbrothers, other guys, which I love also, by the way. Um, but I think your mileage on supporting actor will be your mileage with the movie in a weird way. Like I, like for the first 40 minutes, I was laughing a lot and then the movie gets very real. And then you're like, oh, this sucks because this is tomorrow. <laughs> like, this is our life. <laughs> More like yesterday. Yeah. It's like so we are it, it becomes yeah. a real, it becomes a real bummer. In a good, like, not that, like, it's, like, in a bad way. Like, you're just like, damn, this sucks. So what happens is when Jonah Hill comes in later again, you're like, oh, no, F you, dude. Like, I know you. <laughs> <laughs> this, you're someone that exists right now. So, but Mark Rylance is also like, oh, hi, Mark Zuckerberg. Soon. Well, I think like, he's more Steve Jobs with the. <laughs> I don't know that yeah. he he had meta written all over his face. Yeah, you ask me. <laughs> it is like a funny amalgamum of. Yeah. yeah, he's all he's all of them. Yeah, he he really is. It's 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 a nice blend. Oh, Swan Song, Swan Song opens this week too. Right? Oh, that's right. Can we just give a little shout out to that? Oh, film? I love you, Mahershala. Mahershala Ali, so good in that movie in dual roles, was our guest on the podcast last week. Yeah. Got him to talk a little bit about Blade. <laughs> <laughs> and if you need just something soothing, just listen to his voice for that 30-minute mm-hmm. interview. He's just, he's got the best voice. Oh, and something that I thought was interesting is he's allergic to dogs. And his character <gasps> in Swan Song, you know, is very close with a dog and at one point is even holding a dog. And, uh, you know, they had to maneuver around that because he is horribly, horribly allergic. Wow. Uh, so now we definitely know that Janelle Riley and Mahershala Ali would never work out. Oh, like, that's right. Ever. It would never. I'm a dog. I'm yeah. a dog person. Yes, that's the reason. That's but maybe the <laughs> reason. The Mahershala clone, maybe. Yeah. That's <laughs> clone enough Mahershalas to go around. <laughs> This is, yeah, I know everyone's joking, but for years it feels like people have been trying to set me up with Mahershala Ali, and while I'm very flattered, <laughs> he is way out of my league. <laughs> uh, well, real quick, let's let's look ahead to Monday, because Monday is big nomination day, um, Critics' Choice Film, and then Golden Globes. It's Announcing at the same time, uh, or? Three uh, hours apart. Okay. But... They are announcing on Monday, so uh, we'll we'll see what that looks like, how it goes, what uh, people we're talking about. Turn down their nominations. So, so th- there are no submissions. Right. So a- anyone can just be. So I guess you can. I guess in theory you could be like, I refuse to be nominated, but your name is still there. I don't think it works like Grammy stuff. Right, which just happened this week. Yeah, someone with, with, with yeah. Drake. Um, so they can just nominate whatever they want and listen like you know we know that there's like you know back you know door campaigning happening so people are gonna pop in here and there i think it's gonna be for me i'm interested a little bit in the and i'm by the time this is out it probably won't be out. i'll have like some thoughts but the genre things that we usually run into there um the genre questions like what's house of gucci Mm-hmm. what's being the Ricardos what's licorice pizza you know what's uh what there's another big one that I had a question on um yeah like those are are, are interesting like little little bit oh, eyes of Tammy Faye another one like are those comedies or are those dramas so that's what I'll be a little bit interested in but other than that, it'll be whatever it ends up being. Yeah, especially with no submission process. Yeah. yeah. It's really up for the Globes to yep. decide, I guess. And international can now be in picture. So <gasps> oh. I just feel I just feel like I just feel like all the and, and animated back as well. I just feel like all these like problems that they've had the last few years 
they'll make a point to make a statement in a in a couple areas. So I wouldn't be surprised like Parallel Mothers is in Best Picture drama. Like mm-hmm. that that seems like what they'll do or a hero. And then they'll nominate some acting foreign performances or something like that. But I I am almost feeling certain that Ben Affleck is going to be there. I just don't know what for. <laughs> oh, you mean between Tender Bar and Last Duel or Yeah. yeah. Or both or both. I'm looking for my Tom Cruise Tropic Thunder nomination. He's so wonderful <laughs> in both movies. He really is. I yeah. like he's he's so lovely in Tender Bar, but I just think his his performance in Last Duel is such a scene stealer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on the TV side, I'm not really expecting anything too wild or outlandish. <laughs> I, I think he didn't even like. He's like, nah, this not really. Gonna go out on a limb with that one. I'm kind of, eh. Um, Critics Choice TV came out. Some interesting choices, real quick. Uh, they love evil. I love evil. If evil were on HBO, it would be sweeping awards. It is so clever, dark, funny, original. Like, I just love how crazy that show is. Yeah. I mean, it's the Kings. The Kings, they 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 know TV. Um, so, you know, congrats to them and Paramount Plus for, you know, getting on the board. <laughs> yeah. I, I am, uh, I I was on the NomCom uh, this, this year for TV and Evil was like, oh, like some, a lot of times people like really go hard. It's kind of like New York Film Critics Circle when they announce winners. Like people walk in with like some packs of like, all right, we have to put our eggs into this basket to make sure this happens. Well, I loved uh, For All Mankind getting a drama nod because yeah. that is, yeah. I, that, it's such a good show. And it's, you know, it's people, you know, critics are talking about it, but I think it still it doesn't get the, the kind of buzz that it should get. Um, and then, you know, Squid Game, Squid Game's going to Squid Game. It's it's everywhere. So, oh, squid. But uh, actually, Mike, I have a question for you. With because um, SAG voting also opened uh, this past Monday. Yeah. Uh, do you, are you feeling the Squid Game taking ensemble? Yeah. There. Yeah. Like that. I mean, it's it'll definitely get a nomination, and then we'll see. Sort of, you know, have have people already moved on? Is is the nomination going to be the big win? But the very least, it, it absolutely gets a drama ensemble nomination this year. What's its okay. biggest competition? Uh, Succession, of course. Yeah. Succession, yeah. which has never been nominated for a SAG award, right? Yes. Which honestly, that's right. why I think Succession it probably will get the leg up only because we've kind of moved on a little bit from Squid Game and we're like knee deep in Succession, and now, yeah, I mean. Did you guys all watch Sunday's episode? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. All oh, right. Well, we no. can't spoil it for Clayton, no. but it no. ends on quite a note. And by the way, I'm talking to Sarah Snook. Uh, and by the time this podcast comes out, that podcast will have already posted along with uh, your uh, chat, you know, with uh, Nicholas Bertel. So we've got a succession twofer that is in your inbox. Uh, if you haven't listened to it yet, uh, hopefully Sarah will uh chat a little bit about uh, all the things that went on uh, for a number of characters on the penultimate episode. Shit, shit's going down. Shit is going down. Yeah. Uh, wait, hold on, Mike. I, I have like two more questions for you because we don't get to talk TV with you a lot. So this is very interesting. Yeah. Do you think only murders in the building gets ensemble? Because sometimes you, you interpret that as just three people and they like larger ensembles. Even though there are five, do you think it, it it misses? I think people love Steve Martin and Martin Short so much that it's that that still could could yeah kind of win out over. You're right; it does feel like it's it's a three hander, mm-hmm. but you know Poor that Nathan is a great. Lane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean Nathan; he's just not in every episode, so what you don't think Sting? of him. Sting would be a Sting Sting would be a part of that mix. Actually, I I don't think Nathan would uh, get an ensemble nomination. I think the other two would be Aaron Dominguez and Amy Ryan. Oh, okay. I think they're the only two that would that would end up getting it if if, if, if they were included. Because I remember uh, I went back to our history. uh, Million Dollar Baby that year uh, was only um, Clint Eastwood, Morgan Freeman, and and, uh, Hilary Swank, and one. Uh, no, it lost. It lost. Oh, did it lose to Sideways? It lost. Yeah, Sideways won. That oh, okay, year. okay. Yeah, yeah, I remember now. And then uh, Beast of No Nation also had three people in their ensemble when it was nominated. So it, it, it they get they have done it. 
Um, all right, so that was that one. And then lastly, Mike, for you, Ted Lasso. Do you think this second season does what it's been doing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it absolutely – it gets the domination, and it's still the front runner. Um, okay. Because don't forget, this is SAG. It's like that, you know, twenty five thousand. No, one hundred twenty five thousand. Right? It's, yeah. It's, it's it goes such, out to everyone. The radio yeah, people. Out, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think when you're dealing with that kind of a large body, um, you know, there's still a huge chunk that you know hasn't been jaded by the backlash to Ted Lasso, and I think yeah. Ted Lasso ended up sort of you know really uh, you know ended on a strong note and. It it'll forever be the front runner this year. We'll see okay. beyond that, but but I think it still is like in line, definitely for a nomination. Yeah. Let alone probably for the win. Small ensembles, I think. Also, I was thinking about hacks for that too. Like, yeah. do, you, do you see that it's just like Smart and Einbender, and then Carl Clemens, I guess, as well. Like, what do you kind of do in that in that realm? So, I'd be, yeah. it'd be interesting to see if it gets into ensemble. I but hope listen, it does. I, I want to listen, SAG. If you're listening, all SAG. Because I know you listen to this every week. Girls 5 Eva. Oh, Girls so good. 5 Eva. So good. I had a dream last night about Girls 5 Eva. That's funny. You, that's a wonderful dream. And you should dream it all the time. <laughs> I, I had my Girls 5 Eva pants on. When is it back? <laughs> Not soon enough yep. is the answer. But I don't think they've uh, announced that yet. All right. Well, on that note, gang, we should uh, get going and uh, we'll have a lot to talk about next week once uh, more nominations come out and uh, more and more stuff happens. So until then. Oh, also guest this week, Julia DeCorn, DeCornow, DeCornow, Titan. I can't say it right. It's a neon podcast (laughs) this week. (laughs) All right. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. After the break, Teton director Julia Ducourneau from Los Angeles. This is Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. And we're back. It's the Award Circuit Podcast. I'm Michael Schneider. French director Julia Ducourneau is changing the vocabulary of cinema with her heart-stopping imagery and boundary-blurring approach to genre. That originality helped propel her second film, Titan, to a Palme d'Or win in Cannes this year, making Ducourneau just the second woman to win the prestigious prize after Jane Campion. Titan is the story of a young woman who has a metal plate fitted in her skull after a terrible accident as a child. On the run after a series of violent encounters, she finds refuge at a fire station and a father figure in a fire chief, played by veteran French star Vincent Linden. All the while, her body feels the transformative and visceral effects of having coupled with a shiny, sexy automobile at a car show. Tu connais la Macarena? On va chanter la Macarena pour les d'accord? Et tu vas me suivre en rythme et tu presses toutes tes forces, d'accord? Ta 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 Macarena, ta 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 cosa buena, ta 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 Macarena, oh Macarena, souffle, souffle si elle meurt, souffle. On recommence. Friday's Clayton Davis spoke with Ducourneau about Titan, and they began by discussing how she prepared for the process of constructing a script for the film. Well, the first thing that I can say is that it was not easy at all. Uh, I think that Titan is the, um, the hardest script I've ever had to write, although I'm very young in, in my career. Um, but I think that I never struggled as much as I did for this one for many reasons. The first reason, obviously, is and somehow I, I want to say a very important one, but also a very um, side one somehow because it comes from the outside. I was very scared of the expectations that people had for my second film, uh, knowing that Raw... Uh, had found its own su- success, and I was like aware that people were expecting things, which was not the case, obviously, when it's your first feature, no one expects anything because no one even knows you're, you exist. So this is something that I struggled with very much. I also struggled with my own expectations um, as far as my second film was concerned. Um, when I came out of Titan, I was very uh, drained and um, I, and I gave everything I had to, the, uh, not Titan, sorry, out of Raw, and I, I, I felt that I had given everything I had to Raw, and I was afraid that I didn't have 
um, anything else to give in, to another film, and especially love. And so that was something that took a long time to find in me, um, you know, not to compare uh, a film that does not exist yet to some to a film that is finished. And this is something that can be quite crippling. And the the, the last thing is that once I got to um, surpass my writer's block, which lasted a very long time, it lasted for a year, um, and I got to um, the story and to Alexia, I found another obstacle, which was the fact that I could not relate to my main character. And I could not relate to my main character because no one can. At the start of my film, it's virtually impossible to relate to, to her. And yet I knew that my story had to start as it starts now in order to reach like a full transformation towards uncondition unconditional love at, at the end of it. Um, and for, uh, for us to earn somehow uh, that love through a journey on understanding how love is born between two people who were not meant to love each other and who were just like um, living a lie at the start. And so knowing that I had to start with that, um, it was very like, it was, that's why I was talking about, you know, trying to find new, new, new ways to, re to relate to characters. Because I thought if I can't relate to her on a like personal way, because she is what she is and what at the beginning she needs to be, meaning someone who is like deprived of emotions and deprived of humanity, and who is someone who has like a very, very, very uh, hectic, chaotic way to relate to the outside world um, that is driven by death, basically. And I thought, well, I need my audience and myself to stay with her, to bear with her and to understand what she's going through until the, the story, you know, uh, morphs into something else. Uh, until we get to, like, let's say, a more known space where, you know, emotions start to arise. And I think that choosing helped me with that. I decided that we would relate to her through her body. That mm -hmm. would be like the first thing is like, it's really all about her bodily, bodily experience and um, the pain she inflicts upon herself um, through uh, the, the, the whole be beginning of my film. And, and that is something that, that for me, if it did not call for moral empathy, then it could call for like immediate bodily empathy, which means like when you see someone going through something painful, that your immediate reaction would be to, you know, kind of hurt the same way. So that was my entry point here. And the second thing that I managed um, to, uh, to go through in order to write her was really anger. Um, I think anger in her, um, let's say, uh, feminine status in, in the beginning of the world that I, uh, that I um, create here. And this anger is something that I could relate because it comes from the fact that I think that the public space nowadays is not uh, shared equally by men and women because uh, women have to develop strategies the moment they get out of their home in order to um, anticipate on potential aggressions, okay? So this is something that revolts me very much. And I think that, I think a part of that anger I transferred to her. You know, the fact that I did not, I did not want to um, abide by this social law that women are targeting with victims, that they have to be victims in the public space. And so that's why I created someone who was just like so devoid of emotion that she could actually, um, yeah, make her own laws, basically. Yeah. Oh, God, that's me. It's, it's so interesting the way that you, that you describe it, because that is the way that I, I never even thought about it that way. That is the way we connect with her, um, with, with Alexa. It's, it's the, is the body, uh, you know, cause she looks like she's going through, I mean, she obviously is going through pain, but, um, there's a, a sense of, I guess, uh, reality and fantasy that kind of goes in with Titan. Like uh, people question like, what is real? What isn't, did you keep it? uh purposefully ambiguous in that way or is it pretty straightforward and we're overthinking it well as far as i'm concerned 
everything is real in the film in the sense that this is the world I create and these are the rules of the world I create. So mm-hmm. everything I show you is something that happens, but I'm not saying that this is reality. It's just the world mm-hmm. I create. But it's true that I'm trying to, most of the time, to stay clear of um, um, dream sequences. Like every time I have an idea for a dream sequence, I wonder why is why why is it a dream? I mean, for me, it means that there is something that bothers me that I don't want to put on myself or something. And so you decide it's just a dream because it's a nice image and you still want to put it in your film because you think the image looks nice. But every time, every time I think that, I'm like, no, if you like that image, you've got to make it work in order for it to be in the narrative and to have like a stake at this moment in order to make the narr- narrative go forward. Because I do feel that um, for me, that's really my own opinion, is that dream sequences somehow um, make the narration go to a form of stagnation, you know, for a moment. And I think I'm not too keen on that. I'd rather like really say, okay, what do you really want to say with that image that you like so much? And, you know, find the ways to make it work in order to um, to be the reality of your character at this moment. So, that, that, so everything that um, for me in my film is real. Awesome. Okay. Thank you. Um, you are the, uh, I know you've probably been asked this a thousand times, but I have to ask, you are the second woman uh, to win the Palm d'Or, the first solo woman to win the Palm d'Or, uh, but second woman overall to win that prize. And it's obviously very, it, you know, oh, it's a very long road coming. And I think you already spoke to, you know, the imbalance of men and women in life but let alone in in the movie industry uh obviously famously uh announced first at the top of the ceremony by spike lee which is probably a, such a spike lee moment to, to, to have <laughs> but uh can, can you take me back to that moment like how, how did it feel and how does it feel to have that distinction you know at such a young age in in your career um well, there are two answers to that question. The first one is that, honestly, it's still a haze to me. Uh, I don't think it's something that I have fully processed yet, and I don't think that I want to process it, actually. Um, maybe in retrospect in many years, uh, but right now, I'm somehow I do not want to... Um, yield under the weight of this too much because I want to keep on working and basically for me my next step is my next film and that I'm very focused on that. Um, I, I was obviously, honored is really like an understatement. It's again, it's like it's the dream of any filmmaker, I think. And the fact that it happened when I was 37 was a bit uh, putting myself, you know, it puts yourself off track a little bit because obviously you never expect to receive it at, at such a young age. And it's, it made me change somehow uh, my uh, sense of temporality as far as my career and my work are concerned. Um, but also I think that it's, it raised the stakes very much, which is really good for me. I really, I like that. I like the fact that my, my impulse was to, to, to see it as like this absolutely amazing uh, turn of the story. But then what, how high can I go after that? You know, how, how higher I can go uh, after that? This is really something that, um, yeah, that pushed me pushes me up, you know, it up, uplifts me. I think is that the word? It uplifts yep. me very much. Yep. And yep. I very I, I remember the whole ways because it made me laugh so much. Um, Steven Stutterberg's words when he received the Palme d'Or for Sex, Lies and Videotapes. Mm-hmm. I believe he was 25 and it was his first feature. And he said like, he said something like, I think now I can only go down or something like that. <laughs> and yep. It's very funny because it is very funny because it is it is something that you think about. Obviously, this is like the the the, the something that it, at at the same time you're so exhilarated and you know and happy and all that, and at at, at the same time you're very scared because like 
yeah, well, I'm at the height of this mountain. So what do I do now? Do I go down or do I look, you know, for another higher mountain or something, you know? And he, he did reach way higher mountains than this. So he's a very good model for that. Wow, that's awesome. Um, you are representing the country of France at the Academy Awards uh, to get a nomination for international feature. Uh, women have not typically represented France, uh, one of the stains of France. France is the only country that submitted uh, to the Academy Awards every single year since the category has existed. Uh, mm -hmm. It's resulted in 65 submissions, 38 nominations, nine uh, wins. However, uh, the last film directed by a woman to represent France was uh, Mustang in 2015. Yeah. Uh, there's only been nine women in total in that entire 65-year uh, span. You're lucky number 10 now, rounding out. Um, what would it mean to you to represent, represent the country at the Academy Awards, especially for a film such as this that's genre-defying and, you know, completely reinvents uh, something new for itself? Well, um, for me, it is a big win, to be honest. I'm very, very proud that they chose my film to represent my country because, you know, um, in France, for, like, we don't have a huge culture of genre movies. A lot of people um, um, fight to make it happen. A lot of directors um, fight to make their films um, done and producers as well. However, it's true it's um, somehow it's it's been looked down on a little bit, this culture. Mm -hmm. um, it's not something that is installed like it is in the in the States, you know, not at all. So I must say that for me, the win is that I'm like, oh man, th things are changing here a little bit. As far as genre films are concerned, things are changing. As far as this culture is concerned, things are changing. And I, I do hope that um, it is the beginning of something, but I believe so. I'm not saying that, that this is so new that it's just like in the past years, because like it's been decades that you've had people who really, um, who really, um, yeah, um, fought to find their way through our industry with genre films. Um, but it's true that as far as other countries are concerned, they were not like uh, well distributed. They were not um, uh, very present in um, in the landscape, just in the cinema landscape here. So this is for me like a very big deal because it uh, it really means that somehow France is questioning and trying to also renew uh, its own cinematography, uh, not cinematography, um, its own cinema. Mm -hmm. And um, so yeah, so I think I'm I'm happy because I do intend to keep making um, films in France, and so it's a very good sign, like for me and many others. But that was be my next question, uh, you know, and Pong Joon-ho famously said once, because Americans, I'm, I'm sure you know how difficult we can be, but uh, foreign cinema, it's always a fight to get people to watch it here because of the subtitles. And Pong Joon-ho, uh, famous director, Parasite, one best picture with Neon, who you're with as well, um, says once you get over that, you know, one inch text on your screen, you can, you, you're you can enjoy so much more movie making. Do you ever have an intention or think about making English language, uh, an English language film for like American audiences? Um, you know, I mean, not out. only American, like any English speaking audience, obviously as well. <laughs> but uh, it was all air quoted. I was like, yeah, you know, I'm just trying to keep it, keep it there. But yes, please. No, I do. Yeah, no, no, I do want to. And especially, I mean, really, as far as like writing scripts is concerned and um, obviously working with English speaking actors as well. But starting with a script that I could write in English, because like right now my English is pretty rusty. But if I stay in the U.S. for like a week, it's way you are better. Not rusty. We're having a really good conversation. You're, you're, you're doing very, very well. 
<laughs> but um, but I, I think that's like that's something that interests me. You know why? Because I do believe that you don't write the same way and you don't write the same scenes, uh, whether you write them in French or in English. I think that English is a way more action-driven language. So um, for me, it would be very interesting. I'm already very much action-driven. So <laughs> but so for me, it's like it's really a, a small step um, uh, before I do that. Um, but I, I do think that it would, um, yeah, give out something um, different. And I want to tell you something that is very weird. I don't write many dialogues in French. Um, really? Even Raw, which had substantially more dialogue than Titan, but still it was not a lot. I always say that I like to, uh, um, on, on the page, I like to go as far as the action can go and as far as the image can talk and as far as the sound can talk. And then I see if I have dialogues or not, okay? Uh, I see if I can express things only with image and action, then I only express things like this. Um, however, when I write dialogues, I think them in English, which is very weird. Like, <laughs> I, I've always wondered, but I think because honestly, the, 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 the cinema that I'm mostly driven to is English speaking. Mm. Um, so I think that's one of the first reasons, but also, I think that the English language is much more fictional than the French language, at least to me, obviously, because French is my language. Mm -hmm. It brings this instant fiction where you can say much more to me and with like less um, inhibition than in my own language. Like, for example, like things would sound cheesy to me in French, but not in English. Okay. Yeah, right. So to answer your question, yes. I will definitely yeah. <laughs> direct them in English. Yep. Uh, I, I remember, like, I can remember, there's very few movies I can remember exactly, like, where I was, what I was doing, like, in, in any given moment. And I remember the moment I saw Titan. It was at the New York Film Festival. And I walked out. The movie was over. I got, there's a little video clip I have of you online, like, when you got the standing ovation in the room, and I walked out. And I immediately, like, I was speaking to someone and I said, somewhere in the world, during the pandemic, Julia was just making this movie. Like, just, like, somewhere, we, we like, we were, minding our, we we're all in the middle of a pandemic, and Julia's just making Titan, no one bothering her, she's just <laughs> doing this. Like, I, I had no idea. And at that moment, I had that conversation, Tom Quinn, head of Neon, walks out. And I was like, listen, I don't know what you guys are going to do, but just do it. Like, do that same parasite magic, do it with Teton. And I love that that movies surprise us. That That's what it is. Because I had, because I do real. I try to do my best to not know what a movie's about. Yeah, I do the same. I do my, I really try as hard to do that in my job. And I was, and I didn't know. And I was so glad. It was one of the best surprises. You, Bobby, people are loving this movie and love your vision of it. But I also feel like they don't know you enough. So what was the movie growing up that did it for you? That was like, I'm in, I got to go be a filmmaker. Oh, okay. Well, it's hard to answer. It's like, it's not like one movie that made me want to become a director. Yeah. So the first thing is that when I decided that I wanted to do something with my life, it was writing. Yeah. I was like, writing is my thing. And that's why the Pedro Almodovar thing is really like, I'm happy because it brings me back to the source, you know, it's really yeah. nice. Um, so yeah, it was writing. I've always written since I was a kid. I wrote stories since I learned how to write. And even before that, I was actually the one telling my parents bedside stories. Like I would invent them and they would actually follow them, <laughs> fall asleep next to me. <laughs> It's so. amazing. <laughs> I'm imagining like a little eight-year-old Julia just putting her kids, her parents to sleep. <laughs> yeah, and that was very convenient to them too because they were tired, they didn't want to read anything, so I would do the whole thing, you know, the whole show. But uh, and so yeah, for me that was always like the first thing. But I've consistently watched a lot of films in my life because my parents are big cinephiles and that the it was part of my education basically they were like 
big like authors that you have to read and they were like big directors you have to see this film of you know and um and so i think like maybe the first time that i obviously did not say i want to be a director but the first time i felt like a real um uh, let's say a relationship with the film while watching it was when i was pretty young i was eight and it was with clia cuervos by carlos saura um and you know at the time my my parents um showed us this film because there was this song in it that's called uh, Borquete Bas uh, by Jeanette that was very popular at the time, like very, very popular. And because of the song, my parents showed us the film in which the song, you know, became famous and all that. And I felt like, I don't know how to say that, but I felt so represented in that film. And I'm saying this, the character is eight, her name is Anna, and she has, she can't cope with the loss of her mom. And she has to live with her father that she hates because he has a new uh, woman and her aunt, whom she hates as well. And uh, because her aunt is somehow like um, trying to ground her to the realization of the death of her mom and with her two sisters. And there is something in that film that is incredibly honest with what it is to be alone when you're a child and how it's. It's not all that pink, you know, it's not, it's not all fairy tales and cartoons and all that. And there is something very deep in it because the, 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 the character is, is like a sponge. She's hypersensitive and she feels like very strongly the moods of adults that try to hide them, but she feels what's happening for real. And there is this whole thing with her, the mom as a ghost who's played by Geraldine Chaplin, who comes back to talk to her and they talk like watching the camera and all that. So it's a very uh, unusual way to tell that story about a child. And I must say that after that, I felt so connected to that character that I, my parents bought me the little vinyl of Porque Te Vas. Mm. And I was listening to it like constantly with my little, you know, things where you would put vinyls in it. Yeah. And exactly the same way as the character does in the film. So I was like mimicking her as crazy. And this is the first time in my life that I felt how powerful a film could be and how much it could talk about yourself and it could make you feel less alone. And yeah. yeah it's interesting. Uh, I was having a, I was speaking with Denzel Washington recently who who tell who told me like, you know, you're you're in this business and you never know who you touch and who you're going to touch at some point. Yes. And, you know, Carlos Saura, you know, all, all these people that probably have no idea what their movies have done for people. Yeah. It's very hard to like kind of de, you know, kind of deconstruct that. And then you look at yourself, you don't know what Titana Raw is going to do for someone like, you know, I mean, I have a 10 year old. I'm not going to let her watch Titan yet. I will let her watch it. It's just like, give her a little more time, but like, you don't know, like that, it, it could be the, 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 the watering on the seed that makes it grow into a plant. Like you don't know what, what it can do. I think that as a filmmaker, you, you kind of hope that you will touch at least one person just like, just because I think somehow you're trying to do the same thing that other films did to you. And you're trying to, um, you know, um, bring your own, your, your, yeah, your own um, share to this, you know, to try to give back a little bit. And and I always like, I know it's weird because I know my film are not like the most accessible films in the world. Um, but what I'm doing in there is trying to touch this very intimate place that no one ever talks about. And I personally hate unsaid business. I hate unsaid things. And I'm really trying to, um, I'm trying to make us commune over um, something that uh, we would not talk to our friends or to our family or even to ourselves somehow. And I think that if I manage to do that and to touch one person who left something like buried inside and to relieve that person from that, even just for the time that they're just watch, watching my film. I'm not talking about forever. I'm not talking about changing their lives. I'm just talking about this one hour and 40 minutes where they're watching my film. Um, if they feel less alone with something, then I think that this is, the, I mean, that's the best thing that can happen. Like really, I'm really doing my films thinking of that very much. 
That's director Julia Ducourneau, the filmmaker behind Titan, which was released wide in October. And that's it for this edition of Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. Drew Griffith edited this episode, and Michael Schneider is the producer. Be sure to subscribe to the Award Circuit Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. Also, head on over to Variety.com and click on the Award Circuit tab to find the latest Oscar predictions and key races, as well as your daily fix of news, analysis, and reviews. For Jazz Tanke, Clayton Davis, and Janelle Riley, I'm Michael Schneider, and we'll see you on the circuit.